What's going on? Welcome to the Pete Callender Show. Thank you for listening. I am Pete. You can hear all of the latest episodes at thepetecallendershow.com and, of course, on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. All of the links uh, are also up at thepetecallendershow.com. And the show is made possible by all of the great patrons, uh, folks like Jeff and Nicole, Jim, JK, Jonathan, Jocelyn, Juanita, and Karen. Thank you very much for all of your support. I really appreciate it. And the show is also made possible by Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com is the website if you are in need of a great bed. And really, at times like these, you really need a good bed to spend all of your self-isolation on. You know, if you're going to be sitting at home for days and days and weeks and weeks, chances are you've got a lot of bedtime coming, you know? So uh, whether it's, you know, Netflixing and chilling, or if it's just Netflixing, whatever it may be, you need a good mattress, okay? So go to mattressmanstores.com. It's locally owned and operated. They do have four stores in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, but they've put all of their inventory up onto their uh, website so you can see everything that they have. And um, you can also, if you are local, get their white glove delivery service, okay? Right? Gloved service. Pretty important right about now. Um, also, uh, it's free, and if you use the RESTWELL discount code, you will get an additional 20% savings. RESTWELL is the code. R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L. It's all one word, RESTWELL. Mattressmanstores.com. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, so it ensures that you're going to love your mattress, okay? There's really, like, zero risk here for you. Okay, you have a 120-day comfort guarantee, so if you don't, they'll exchange it for free for this limited time. So, you know, you sleep on the right mattress, makes all the world of difference, especially if you're sleeping for 20 hours a day for the next month. So, mattressmanstores.com, experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local and sleep better. An update to a story from the other day, Uh, this is the North Carolina Sheriff, uh, in Wake County, I should say, he, uh, remember... Uh, put a ban on uh, uh, or suspended temporarily, of course, all of the pistol purchase permits that the sheriff's office is legally required to issue. Uh, This is uh, Wake County Sheriff Gerald Baker, and uh, he made this announcement uh, probably, what, like a week ago or so, citing the spike in demand he said like normally they process you know a couple dozen a day and now they're like hundreds of day uh hundreds a day and there's a line at the door and so because the governor said we all uh, should be socially distanced you know from each other uh he doesn't want all of the sheriff doesn't want all of these people congregating at the sheriff's office but rather than create you know some sort of a line system a queue or appointment system something no one said he just shuts it all down. And again, I feel the need to point out that Sheriff Gerald Baker in Wake County um, was also is also a sanctuary sheriff. Okay, uh, so this is really it is very much on brand for him, don't you think? So a judge rules uh, this week that uh, sorry, sheriff, you you can't do that. Okay. The sheriff has to modify the application process to minimize the number of people in the Justice Center, um, but he has to resume accepting and processing pistol purchase permits within a week of this order that was uh, handed down by Superior Court Judge A. Graham Shirley. Baker temporarily suspended accepting new pistol purchases, uh, uh, the permits rather, on March 24th, and the sheriff's office says that they just got unprecedented numbers you know, people are just buying all of these, um, all of these guns now. All of a sudden, and I don't know why that would be. Gee, do you think it may be due to a lack of confidence in the government systems? What else? The oh, this is interesting. WNCN from uh, Charlotte is reporting that a member of the cafeteria staff at the General Assembly has tested positive for COVID nineteen. Uh, officials say the employee was immediately sent home on March 26th after showing signs of the illness. Uh, that employee and those working with her have been placed on leave and they have been advised to self-quarantine. 
Officials say the cafeteria will be closed indefinitely and undergo a thorough cleaning to ensure that any trace of the virus is removed. The snack bars located in the basements of the legislative building uh, will have a thorough cleaning. Um, and uh, then they're saying, well, you know, we're uh, uh, and then they'll start converting it all to takeout. And one of the excuses when asked why the General Assembly was still running its cafeteria, the General Assembly said, well, because the uh, orders from the governor, that was from the executive branch and the uh, the cafeteria is the legislative branch. <laughs> OK, hope it was worth it, everybody. Hope it was worth it. Um there is this North Carolina leaders announced shared bipartisan support for deferring the accrual of interest on state income taxes. So this was one of the this is one of the things, by the way, if you are uh, like me, I have not filed my taxes yet. I'm going to have to do it uh, this weekend, I guess. And yeah, really looking forward to doing that. Uh, owing a bunch of money during the, you know, the great, great, great depression here as it uh, on the door as we're on the doorstep of it. But um the uh, uh, the extension that they've uh, thrown out for everybody, you're going to have to pay this, uh, or or you can uh, you can delay filing until I think they said July, but whatever interest you owe is going to accrue in the meantime. So if you owe taxes, like I do probably, um, that money that I owe is going to accrue interest during the time period from April 15th through July 15th. So it's really not even an extension for me. I'm go- we're going to have to do it. So, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, but at least North Carolina lawmakers, they said, you know what, we're going to waive that. We'll defer the accrual of interest on state income taxes. Uh, the deadline for state and federal tax filings were delayed to July 15th. Penalties for late payments were also waived. The penalties were, but not the interest at the federal level, at least. The North Carolina General Assembly and the governor have to approve the law to defer accrual of interest on income taxes. Um, and so they all put out a press release <clears throat> to say, we're all on board with this, bipartisan, yay us. Um, the legislature is due to reconvene in Raleigh at the end of the month, April 28th, for its short session. And there has been uh, the House Special Committee on COVID-19. They've already been meeting, but they've been doing it remotely with a lot of different working groups and stuff. Um, and one of those working groups was looking at taxes. And by the way, one of the big impacts they're looking at is um, this uh, the, the impact on revenue from people not having work. They're not going to be paying taxes, and so the state's not going to be collecting taxes. This is going to be the second wave of uh, of impact here crashing onto our financial shores uh, where all of the people that lost their jobs now aren't paying any taxes. And now the state doesn't have tax money, doesn't have revenue to pay for its operations because the rainy day fund can only cover so much. If you've got a budget gap of $2 billion, you're going to have, they're, they're going to start making cuts. And what are you going to do? Raise taxes on people that aren't working. <laughs> they're not, they're not paying taxes now. Why, why are you going to raise taxes on the few who, who, who are remaining that have a job? Like those few who still have work, you're going to raise taxes on them. That's a great idea. Have you noticed by the way, how many laws, uh, how many ordinances and regulations and rules, like all of this stuff is getting suspended during the COVID-19 outbreak. Have you noticed that? It's almost like there's a lesson to be learned about the impact that government regulations have on commerce. Almost, you know? We'll actually talk with John Sanders from the John Locke Foundation in a minute about some of the more obvious and egregious examples. But first, let me tell you about uh, Old Grouch's military surplus. Are you prepared for all of this? Do you know if you are? Do you need some advice? Tim at Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde he has been advising people for probably now close to two months on how to be prepared for all of this that's happening. Like, Here's a great piece of advice he gave me weeks ago, which was whatever the government is telling you about, you know, self-isolation or like whatever their recommendations are, whatever they recommend, double it. And it's a great piece of advice. So if the government's saying you should be prepared to not have any... Uh, you know, or you should be prepared to have limited mobility and self-isolation now for a month, we should expect two. That's a good rule of thumb to have. So if they say you should have, you know, two weeks of uh, food and water and all of this on reserve, um, have four weeks, double it. 
And uh, this is the kind of advice that Tim offers up. But he also obviously has a, an entire military surplus store, which has a fantastic mix of modern and vintage items. It's an old school, traditional store. Great folks. Oldgrouch.com is the website. Go to oldgrouch.com. Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. Joining me now is John Sanders. He is the Director of Regulatory Studies at the John Locke Foundation in Raleigh, and you can read his work at johnlocke.org. That is Locke with an E at the end, johnlocke.org. And John Sanders, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, you wrote a piece, uh, well, you write a lot of pieces, and a couple of them we're going to reference here, but the original piece that I saw and I wanted to uh, bring you in to talk about was uh, this piece uh, about two weeks ago, which seems like a lifetime ago now, uh, that uh, you wrote about regulation and red tape. And uh, there were a couple areas that you wrote about. There was the anti-gouging law. There was occupational licensing. There was uh, a- a extensions for various uh, uh, government-required permits like driver's licenses and vehicle registration. And then there was also the certificate of need laws that has a direct impact on how we are fighting COVID-19. So uh, I wanted to kind of walk through each of those and maybe we'll talk about some eggs in the process. Uh, so, Sounds great. all right. So first off, let's start with the uh, anti-gouging laws, price gouging. And what you say is you need to repeal, the state should repeal or suspend the anti-gouging law. And when I say that, people may be thinking, wait, that's got to be a mistake. Surely you're not suggesting that you want people to price gouge, right? So explain why uh, you say that this will actually uh, prevent shortages, but if we suspend the law, prevent shortages, discourage hoarding, and uh, get supplies back onto the shelves more quickly. It seems counterintuitive. It does, and that's what makes it such a hard sell to people. Um, But as an economist, I know that prices are information. Uh, A good doesn't come with a price the way that a T-shirt comes with a tag in the back. Price depends on on circumstances at the time. And the circumstances right now, especially with regards to, to goods like eggs, with goods like uh, toilet paper, it seems to buy toilet paper, I don't know, um, is that everyone really is interested in getting them more so than they wanted two, three weeks ago. We are, we are seeing what an economist calls a, a massive increase in demand. Uh, some of this is panic buying, and that's an important aspect to keep in mind. Um, but the supply short term has not changed. So if you were in an economics classroom and you said, what happens when this happens? Oh, the price has got to increase. Well, in this case, the government is saying we don't want the price to increase because that's taking advantage of people. And instead, what's that what that's doing is it's giving bad information. It's telling consumers nothing's changed um, by like normal. It's telling suppliers you're not going to make any extra money or you're not going to. There's no advantage for you to bring more supplies in here. So what happens is. When you're a consumer with the mindset of, I'm really worried about being able to get these things, I'm going to hoard, and you face a price as normal, then it really is not much of a penalty for you to buy two or three when you just need one. Uh, So everybody's doing that. We run out. We have a shortage. And then the suppliers aren't giving any information that says, bring some more in, because now you can make a little bit extra money. Right. All they're going to see is that we brought in a thousand units. The thousand units sold very quickly. So now we'll try to bring in another, you know, thousand units and resupply on a on a schedule. But now you're not going to. Uh, maybe you bring in two thousand units, and then they all get sold. Like, wh- where's the limit? Because uh, at some point, it's going to. It, it sends the signal to the manufacturer. Oh well, you can just keep manufacturing more and more and more toilet paper. Um, and you know, expand your facilities and just be cranking this out because this is sort of uh, the signal that this is the new normal, but it's not a new normal. The demand is artificially high right now, I would suspect. Right, and if you're a supplier, the reason you may not be supplying toilet paper at the moment is because it's a little bit more expensive for you to do it than other people. So you're not gonna do it. You're not gonna be able to turn a profit at all. Uh, but 
in a higher price environment, suddenly you could. So as we've seen in, in other aspects where industry is, has turned on a dime, um, where, where distilleries are, are making hand sanitizers because they can, um, we could see other kind of supplies being found that way. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, classic examples is the chainsaws being sold right after and generators, you know, right after a hurricane comes through. Um, and, you know, how dare you try to sell these generators to people who need them at the moment they need them the most and then try yeah, to make a profit? Call, yeah, that's what an economist would call arbitrage. You're moving supplies from a place that doesn't need them to a place where it does. Now, this was, a you know, an entrepreneurial minded individual as opposed to a business but we saw this in new york a couple of weeks ago where a guy bought up a whole bunch of hand sanitizer and then wanted to go and sell it later on when it was when people were wanting it mm -hmm. um i don't remember what the price was that he was putting on it but anyway <laughs> he was basically shamed into not doing it right um which, yeah, there's a lot of that going on right now that people are like, oh, how dare you profit off of other people's uh, crisis, essentially, right? And, and their own crisis, but other people's misery that somebody is profiting and that's unseemly, right? They're, right, so and they don't want to take advantage of people. And what they don't realize is that by making the price what it was before there was a massive increase in demand and a massive increase in panic buying, then the advantage goes to who can get there first. And a lot of times that's not going to be the person who's in the greatest need. It's not going to be the elderly person. It's not going to be the poor person who has to work uh, no matter what. It's, it's going to be who can get there first. So you mentioned, uh, poor folks. So that is usually the argument that is made on all these price gouging laws is that, uh, look, if you don't have this law in effect, uh, then, you know, John shows up and he buys all of the toilet paper and then poor Pete shows up and there's no more toilet paper. Whereas if, you know, you, uh, and then, and then you, John tried to, you know, sell it to me at this, uh, exorbitant rate that I can't afford. So now I can't get any of the, uh, the toilet paper. And isn't that isn't that hurting the poor? Well, the thing is, it it is, which is why you want the prices to make the person who gets there first to double double check and think about it. You know, maybe I don't really need to spend twice as much for extra cartons of toilet paper if I don't really need it, so that it's still available. And some grocery stores, uh, I'm sure probably most, if not all of them by now, uh, I know Ingalls here in the uh, Asheville area, they've started limiting, and they began this a couple weeks ago, they limit you know, eggs, they limit bread and milk and meat products to a certain number, you, you know, toilet paper, you know, two packages basically per person or per family at checkout. Uh, and so... What uh, what is essentially happening is there the, the stores and this happens during gas uh, uh, shortages as well, where the gas stations say, you know, no more than five gallons or, or ten dollars worth of gas or something like that, uh, th that the stores begin uh, rationing the the goods versus the price system rationing the goods. But at the end of the day, right, it's still rationing. It's still rationing. And, and again, it's it's. Uh stores are doing what they can because they see what's going on in the community and they want to help. I mean, most, I, I think one of the things that bothers me on the other side of the, the, the anti-price gouging law is that it, it creates a suspicion between people who are natural allies. I mean, people who want to buy a good and people who want to sell them a good, they, they tend to work, work things out. Uh, the, these people are, are natural allies. You like your grocer for the most part. You like going there. Uh, so I, it's the idea that um, I want to go tell on them mm -hmm. because the price has gone up, but I don't know why the price has gone up, and I suspect they're trying to take advantage of maybe not take advantage of me. Maybe I think they're trying to take advantage of people that I feel sorry for. Mm-hmm. So Tom Tillis, our U.S. Senator from North Carolina, a Republican, he's actually introduced federal legislation that would punish people and businesses who engage in price gouging during this crisis. This is a story in the News and Observer. 
It says, under Tillis's legislation, when the president declares a national state of emergency, the Federal Emergency Management Agency would be able to create a list of items needed for the crisis, which I'm sure that list won't be too expansive when government puts it together. Uh, People or businesses who are charging prices that are, quote, grossly exceeding the average price for the item in the previous month or the price being charged by others in the area could all be prosecuted. (laughs) This is called the End Price Gouging During Emergencies Act, or as I like to call it, the EBGDEA. But um, (laughs) this this seems to me like a whole lot of work and a reallocation of resources that would probably be better served being deployed in service of the crisis. I just think it's a terrible idea. (laughs) I I don't... I would like to give a whole lot more more reaction to it, but I mean, I'm just still shaking my head at the thought. How would the government know? What's at what point is it gross? Um, at, at what point is it is an increase in in prices? I mean, I suppose it makes a difference that the the president has declared a state of emergency. Otherwise, you would you would go after people for price gouging every time. Um, December 26 rolls around and, and Christmas candies are discounted 70%. You're saying they were price gouging last week. Yeah. Or uh, what, Valentine's or, you know, uh, roses a uh, week before Valentine's Day and such. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's the thing that I think a lot of people f- miss sort of the fundamental uh, uh, aspect of what money is and what pricing does, right? It. It, it, people think money is just something in the po- in your pocket. It's just a piece of paper, or whatever. But over the years, I've had conversations with people too numerous to to count. That it, uh, trying to explain, it's way more than just like money represents way more than just a dollar figure, right? There's it, there's so much there's so many layers to it. Like uh, as you mentioned, you know the the, the current uh, status of the marketplace. Is there a war going on? It's it's a it's a unit of barter that measures a particular moment in time and you know the buyer and the seller coming together and being okay with that price that they may not be okay with that price the next day or the previous day so there's so many different signals that are kind of embedded in that pricing system and it's sort of uh i think it's like the hubris of man that we try to we think that we can try and manipulate this and fix it and if we we only had the you know the smartest minds doing it we would be able to create this uh, this perfect economic system without without the pricing system at all. It, it, and it's, why in heaven's name would we think that the smartest minds are in government? <laughs> right. <laughs> or as Milton Friedman said, who are these angels among us, right? Where, where are they? <laughs> right. Right. Well, the other thing about it, we want prices to be given monetarily. Uh, the, the more reflective, and I'll explain that in just a second, but the more reflective of what something is going to cost you in terms of dollars is a better pricing system. We have fixed prices. Uh, if we have government set pricing, which is basically what, at the end of the day, what an anti-price gouging law is. It says the price two weeks ago, that's the price. Mm-hmm. Um, fixed pricing is what you have in like Venezuela or some of the Soviet bloc countries where they were known for lines. What happens is, is it turns the monetary price into just part of the price. And then another part of the price is how much time you're going to end up waiting in line for something or waiting or going back and forth to the grocery store until you finally hit the sweet spot for when the supplies just arrive. So the, uh, I've noticed this with eggs um, and uh, you actually at your, uh, at the uh, johnlock.org um, you actually give some credit to WRAL um, in your piece that you wrote here, when was this yesterday, um, or sorry, two days ago, um, WRAL's smart shopper writes a smart piece. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not familiar with WRAL's smart shopper and, and what that is. Is this like a segment at WRAL TV, this Raleigh television station? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like a consumer advocate, uh, mm-hmm. someone who, you know, looks up what's going on in grocery stores and things like that. Um, public interest. Okay. And so 
this is kind of a rare thing for you to compliment WRAL, so I, I think that just deserves a mention here before we move on. <laughs> uh, so credit where it's due. They did a good piece, and uh, this what th- this came from uh, concern or people noticing that the price of eggs has actually increased quite a bit recently, and uh, is this an example of gouging? Right, so a consumer alerted... WREL's smart shopper and said, you know, price of eggs at, I think, Carly C's in, in their local community had gone up um, three to tripled in the last two weeks. And isn't this price gouging? What do you want to do about that? Um, and to their credit, the reporter did not let the story be, hey, the price of eggs is tripled. That's price sales. Um, instead, she called up Carly C's and they gave them the prices that they'd gotten from their distributor in the past two weeks, showing that the price they were receiving had gone up, had tripled. And at the, and actually they were eating seven cents for every carton because they didn't want to raise the price any higher. I suspect that has something to do with they're worried about the price gouging law, but mm. it could be that Carly C's was, being very generous and trying to take care of their community. Yeah. So it went from, according to this article at WRAL, it went from 99 cents a dozen up to 289 a dozen. That's a remarkable increase. And so is this all from panic buying? Some of it is from panic buying, but another part of it, as the article pointed out, uh, so like the first wave of the demand was panic buying. The second wave is everyone's stuck at home. So... <laughs> Everyone's baking breakfast at home. Every day versus I'll grab a power bar on the way out the door. Right. Which is, so maybe all this time, that's why people are panic buying eggs and bread for snowstorms. It's to make eggs and toast the next morning. It's not for French toast at all. Yeah, that makes more sense, actually. Although you could do French toast as well. Um, so uh, let's talk about this other uh, uh, this other. Uh, uh, category that you talk about uh, occupational licensing. This is interesting to me to watch uh, local governments, state governments, even federal government actions to repeal a lot of the laws, a lot of the regulations that they had been putting in place, erecting all of these rules and regs over the course of you know decades. And then when you get into a crisis like this, what do they start doing, right? They start tearing down all of these rules uh, in order to make it easier for people to engage in commerce. Now, the libertarian in me thinks, well, hey, why don't we not put those back up in place after this is over? Because if it's helpful to people to engage in commerce now, it seems like it would be a good idea to help engage commerce later, right? Um I don't think I it's going to last, but I don't think it's going to last. <laughs> uh, so why? So you 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 point out like health professionals specifically, though. Explain what the licensure requirements uh, regarding health professionals uh, were, and and the relaxation that's occurred. Well, for the uh, one of the governor's original orders, waived licensing requirements for healthcare and health and behavioral healthcare professionals who are licensed in other states, so they could use their licensing and go ahead at other places and go ahead and get provisional licenses here so they can start practicing immediately while we have an immediate need. Um, We've seen, I think, uh, retired pharmacies are are now able to to re-up quicker. Retired pharmacists are able to re-up their licenses a lot quicker. There have been some sensible moves um, in North Carolina government along those lines. But like you, I think going forward, uh, we need to really rethink a lot of the licensing that we do in this state uh, because when this is all said and done, our economy is going to be in desperate need of people being able to pick up and start moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are not going to need these government breaks on entrepreneurs who are ready and willing and able to work. Uh, So many other states have proven that you can reform, you can transform your entire licensing regime, question the need for a lot of these things. A lot of times the, uh, 
the state has moved straight to occupational licensing, which is the most extreme regulation on occupation, when other things could have been could have been taken, which wouldn't have blocked someone from starting work, uh, such as, you know, if you're worried about if you're worried about things like um, fly-by-night companies. I mean, you just have registration with the with the Secretary of State. If you're worried about um, if you're worried about cleanliness, you don't have to go straight to licensing. You can require inspections and let them get started working. Uh, there's lots of different things like that where some states, um, Tennessee, Mississippi, Nebraska, Arizona, they, they've moved to a system where the, you ask, what's the real thing that the, the government's trying to do here? Um, what's the least amount of regulation necessary Let's do that and then not stand in the way anymore of our entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I think it's it, this is actually um, during this this crisis, it is exposing a lot of people that are not usually following this topic. Um, they're not even aware of the licensing requirements in so many industries and professions, uh, especially here in North Carolina. Uh, it really is uh, like I, I really it, it's, it's it's one of the things I expected Republicans to actually unwind at a greater clip than they did since taking control of the of the uh, state government for the first time in over a century. I thought that they would do that and they haven't, um, at least not to the extent that I wanted to see them do it. But I think a lot of you know, regular people who don't pay any attention to this stuff are now becoming aware because they'll see a story about how, uh, you know, barbers can't uh, cut hair or they themselves go down to try to get an appointment at their hairstylist and they can't. And then they're told they're not even allowed to have the hairstylist come to their house because they're because they're not allowed to do that work uh, or they risk losing their license. Uh, you've, it seems like there's going to be this entire black market that's going to be created because people are going to want to get their haircuts. I mean, it's just no. You're right. It, especially, it's, it's a good idea. It's a good point about the the hairstylist because um, they can't operate. Uh, I think until April 30th, and you know, you can't imagine everybody ran out and got their hair styled right before they were shut down. So <laughs> right. by the end of April, people are going to be looking pretty rough. Yeah, that's that particular regulation that you mentioned, not being able to do in home visits. That would be nice to wave at this point. Um, if you're worried about social distancing, you're not really going to have that major of a concern if they're visiting in, in the house. Um, furthermore, going forward, see, right now, uh, cosmetologists of all different, different kinds of practices of cosmetology have to practice, according to the licensure law, in an established cosmetology a licensed shop. I don't know how many of those shops are going to be around when things are over. Yeah, uh, a lot of these are going to go under, but people are still going to need need their fix. They're yeah, need their hairdo, you know. So, yeah, where um, do they go? It would yeah. be a good thing to wave too. Is is wave that kind of requirement? Yeah, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of garages are going to become barber shops. Uh, it's after not just all this. the state because the, uh, the some of the local governments actually will forbid forbid that kind of work being done out of the home mm -hmm. yeah I, I i'm hoping that and maybe it's because i'm kind of an optimist here but i'm hoping that this this provides a bit of a moment of clarity on a lot of these topics but i'm i don't know i guess it's cautiously optimistic i'm hoping i'm hoping because when like uh, my wife is sort of uh, uh she's a good uh, gauge for me when it, when something appears on her radar when it re like when it pertains to this sort of topic then i know that it that, that it's broken through you know out of just you know policy wonks like like you and me it's like that's that that now like you know quote real people are understanding the impacts of this stuff and uh, she asked. She asked me about this the other day. Um, all, another one is the uh, certificate of needs, uh, certificate of need laws, rather these CON laws that you and I, I think we've talked about this for years. And North Carolina has got this antiquated system, uh, this CON requirement for new hospital beds, and now all of a sudden people are aware that wait a minute, there's some law that restricts the creation of hospital beds in North Carolina. So explain what the CON law is. And, uh, and then I guess what are we, has they, have they temporarily waived the CON law now? They have waived it with respect to hospital beds. Yes. Um, which was a very important move. Um, 
But the CON law goes back to the 1970s, and there were certain reasons that the, it was it was created uh, that made more sense back then. It still didn't make that much sense, but there were different ways that uh, facilities, hospitals could charge that changed in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but essentially, it was made so that it was going to save money. I mean, think about this, if it doesn't sound familiar. We're <laughs> going to make this massive healthcare healthcare law that's going to um, decrease costs, mm -hmm. and then it doesn't. Uh, but the idea was we want this board of executives to uh, – government executives to decide whether or not your hospital actually – if there's a need in that area for whatever service your hospital wants to provide. North Carolina happens to have one of the largest certificate of need laws. We, I think we cover 25 different services, including things like ambulatory surgery centers and you know hospital beds we mentioned and a whole bunch of other things. Um, anyway, but of course, this is a matter of we're going to limit the supply of something and think it's actually going to cut costs. This thing was such a disaster that even the federal government, which never does this, had to admit by 1987 that this was a failure. They had required all the states to, to adopt these mandates. They eliminated the mandate in 1987. Since then, 15 states have gotten out of it. Uh, North Carolina has not, and we have one of the world's, one of the, the nation's worst certificate of need regimes so i would like to see at the end of this that we admit the obvious and get out of this what are the chances of that actually happening though do you think well it's not been good uh because nothing's been done but <laughs> even with you, republicans at point, yeah at this point there's a lot of questions the lobbying that goes on um the uh, the hospital system is a very powerful lobby. Yeah. Um, and this has a having certificate of need has has a side effect of limiting the supply of hospitals. So states with certificate of need laws have thirty percent fewer hospitals than states without. Hmm. So you know the it creates this perverse incentive to lobby to keep your competitors out, even though that means that people have less access to health service and that really impacts us in a crisis. You know, it's not just the hospital beds at the current hospitals, but think how many more hospital beds we could have if we had 30% more hospitals. Right. Um, one of the other things that uh, uh, came up on our radar is uh, just my wife and I, because I have to get my real ID. Uh, I still haven't gotten it. And I, got, I saw, though, that they're uh, they're doing an extension uh, on that. So that was good uh, for me personally. And that's really what it's all about, right? Uh, by the way, I am speaking with uh, John Sanders. He is the Director of Regulatory Studies at the John Locke Foundation. And uh, have you got your real ID yet from the... From DMV? I did. My license was was due for re-upping ah. last year, so I went ahead and did that. <laughs> okay. So, um, but one of the uh, one of the things you also recommend uh, is uh, that the government, the state government, give extensions for a whole bunch of different things, like expiring driver's licenses, uh, vehicle registrations, and other non-essential services that require in-person visits. Um, and you say that the reason why you, this should be encouraged is. Uh, or uh, the reason why we should do this is to encourage social distancing, right? Is this some sort of the sly backdoor way to unwind these these registrations and licensing and stuff? No, I'm not sly like that. I'll come out and say, <laughs> let's get rid of it, like I did with the certificate of need. I, no, this was just simply, look, if we are really truly worried about people standing in line and being too close to each other during this time, then... One of the things government can do is set the example and say, hey, let's hold off on making you wait in line to get a driver's license if you need a renewal. Let's make you, you know, hold off on getting renewals for, for all these other things. And, and I couldn't think of all the government services that we have to stand in line for, so I just kind of added, and any other service you have to stand in line for. Right. <laughs> um, which it, 
every and, and this is why I bring this one up too is that it, there are topics and ideas and issues that present themselves uh, over you know years, and I kind of put them under the heading of if we were building government from the ground up today, it would look a lot different. You know, uh, building a DMV or not even a DMV, but a driver's license program. Like, how would you build that today? It would look radically different. Uh, You would not have as many brick and mortar places. You would have a lot more uh, use of the digital technology. Um, I think and that's one of the things I think that that all of this uh, COVID-19 lifestyle now that we're in, uh, I I think there's going to be a lot more of this video conferencing and and, uh, Zoom or Skype, which, yeah, what happened to them? They really missed the ball on all of this. But uh, like I said, there's going to be a lot more of those types of interactions incorporated into businesses, but also, I would suspect, government operations. I hope so. I I think it's always good to rethink how we do things. One of the things that I liked that the Republicans did um, in 2013 was to pass a, a law that required periodic review of regulations. Mm-hmm. So every 10 years, you got to pull them out, look at them and say, do we really need these anymore? Uh, have things changed? Is Are they working? Is it actually doing what they're supposed to be? And should we be doing it? Um, so, yeah, I think we should we should question how we do things. Um, one of the questions you asked uh, also, though, was about uh, alcohol, booze. Uh, changing the rules, because uh, for folks who aren't aware, or maybe you're newly arrived in the state, uh, the government controls our alcohol sales here in North Carolina. Uh, and while they were, while while government was uh, forcing all of the restaurants to close and the bars to close, uh, a lot of restaurants started shifting their operations to delivery and carry out service. And that's all fine and good. But if you've ever worked in restaurants, you know, the biggest margins don't come from the food. The biggest margins come from alcohol sales, and they're not allowed to sell those out the door, right? You can't, uh, I think we were talking beforehand, you said you can't pick up a margarita when you go pick up your, uh, you know, your tacos and nachos from the local Mexican restaurant. You can't get a margarita to go. And so is there any chance that that might actually happen in the state? I think it's possible. Uh, In this state right now, under the ABC rules, you can get... You can get a beer, you can get wine to go if it's in the manufacturer's original um, container. So, if, you know, you can get a bottle of wine, you can get a glass or, I mean, a bottle or a um, can of beer. Mm-hmm. And you can also have a growler filled. Um, but you cannot have a mixed drink. So you can't get a to-go cup, even a sealed cup, to-go cup with a mixed drink. Some of the restaurants and some of my favorite ones in Raleigh are known for their signature drinks, and I'm kind of missing them. (laughs) (laughs) Now, John, the World Health Organization said that we should not be using alcohol to self-medicate and deal with this while we're all cooped up. Just And if you can't trust the who... Who can you trust, right? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, this is this is one of the things uh, I saw the other day that uh, one of the breweries in Charlotte they were like heavily discounting their kegs because it, the beer's going to go bad. And imagine if they had been so now, so they're just selling the whole keg, you know, which wow. is I guess is fine if you've got like a kegerator or a tap, uh, you're a fraternity house or something. Then yeah, you know, kudos to you, but. Uh, you know, most people don't have a way to drink beer out of a keg. So what are you going to do with that? Like, so they're, they've got all these kegs of beer. Imagine if they had been able to sell to-go cups over the last two weeks, they wouldn't have to be dumping all of this beer. Right. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking of. Um, there was some concern expressed that, well, if you're doing that, you're just encouraging people to drink while they're driving. That, that was, if people are going to break the law, they're going to break the law on that anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to, to pop the, the top off a can of beer on your way home if that's really what you want. I mean, they sell them refrigerated at the grocery store. Right. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, well, and also, I mean, honestly, I should even say this. This will get me in trouble. But I'm going to say it that, anyway. I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, honestly, there's nobody on the roads anymore. Who? Like, Okay, no, so I won't. I'll go there. I've said enough. I've said enough. Well, maybe this. No, we uh, did see a good a good rule change from the ABC system uh yesterday or might have been the day before i think it was just yesterday uh where they are now 
allowing the, uh, the stores to buy back the bottles that they sold to restaurants and bars yeah. because they can't do anything with them. Right. Uh, so that at least, you know, lessens the, the financial blow a little bit on these, yeah, on these restaurants and bars. So that was a good rule change. Yeah. Cause ABC Temporary. is reporting, you know, sales that are comparable to the Christmas season right now. Um, because yeah, you tell everybody they can't leave the house. We definitely are going to have to, uh, we're definitely going to have to self-medicate with alcohol. I mean, we're hanging around family like 24-7 now. It's like just – I'm sorry. It's, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's like a never-ending Thanksgiving Day dinner. It's just – no. All right. I, I'm stop. I'll stop right now. I'll stop. Uh, is there anything else you want to add, John, that you think is important or interesting for folks to know about this that we haven't already covered? Well, I've been fascinated watching on Twitter – that a lot of people nationwide have been using the, the hashtag never needed uh, for any story that crops up in their jurisdiction of a regulation that is being waived or is being discussed being waived during this crisis. And, you know, the phrase never needed suggests that, hey, we don't need them now. When would we need them? Mm-hmm. I, which is why, for me, certificate of need, getting rid of it is is so crucial. I mean, my goodness, if, if you're having to get rid of health regulations in the middle of a health crisis, <laughs> what, what were they doing anyway? Uh, there was one certificate of need story it perfectly encapsulates the absurdity of the law. When I first came to Asheville, there was a, I, I think it was a colonoscopy uh, place uh, looking to get built right on the county line between think Buncombe and Henderson County. And they actually, as part of the CON process, they needed to hold a public hearing on whether or not this medical company, right, a hospital could build a facility that it obviously ran the numbers on and thought, hey, you know what, we could open a facility and be profitable. Uh, and we we could use it right here in right on this county line. And the other hospital, I guess, was like, no, you can't, because uh, you're going to be competing with us. So they have this public hearing. And this woman shows up with no credentials, no experience, no expertise. And she just says, I don't think we need another one of these facilities here. I just think we have enough. And that, and that was it. Her total opinion based on nothing, you know? Meanwhile, you got this company that's done market research. They've done investments, right? They, this is their area of expertise. And they get denied for this thing because what some random person says, I don't think we need enough. Uh, I don't think we need another one of those services here. It's just absurd. Absolutely it, absurd. You're right. And it's the same fallacy with the price gouging law. It's government saying, the need is X or the price is X. And they're not the ones that ultimately should be making that decision. John Sanders is the director of regulatory studies uh, at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlock.org. John, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Good to talk with you again. This is always fun. Thank you. Thank you. You know, when I got here in 2012, the very first advertiser that took a chance on me and my show to sign up for the endorsement when I had zero was Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. And she's been a supporter of me and the show for, well, since 2012, you know, going on nine years now. Um, she's been part of the community and uh, she just so happens to be awesome. She's an awesome real estate agent. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina and she knows and her team knows and I know that uh, you know, all this COVID-19 stuff has impacted us all in very different ways. And, uh, you know, maybe you need to sell your home and you've needed to sell your home. Uh, but you're thinking, gosh, I can't even hold an open house right now. I don't want people walking through my house. Uh, well, Rowena has been offering walking tour videos of all of her homes since 2007 on every listing. Just like the real thing, you walk through the house, you see all of the views from all of the different uh, rooms and such. Uh, it means buyers can tour your home without having to leave their home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena. All you need to do is give her a call at 333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. She's the only agent that I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. So some good news here. Uh, out of the University of Pittsburgh Schools of Health and Sciences and University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, I believe, or uh, yeah, the School of Medicine, um, Scientists there announced a potential vaccine against 
COVID-19, when it was tested in mice, the vaccine delivered through a fingertip-sized patch produces antibodies specific to SARS-CoV-2, uh, uh, which is the COVID-19 is the disease, SARS-CoV-2 is the official name of it, whatever. Um, but uh, the point here is, is that this thing is going under now, tr- it's going to uh, start undergoing trial. Um, the paper appeared in eBioMedicine, which is published by The Lancet, and is the first study to be published after critique from fellow scientists at outside institutions that describes a candidate vaccine for COVID-19. The researchers were able to act quickly because they had already laid the groundwork during earlier coronavirus epidemics. Quote, we had previous experience on SARS-CoV. So that was the original SARS that everybody remembers in 2003. And then there was MERS in 2014. Uh, MERS coming from the Middle East respiratory syndrome and SARS being the uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, These two viruses, which are closely related to the current one, teach us that a particular protein called a spike protein is important for inducing immunity against the virus. We knew exactly where to fight this new virus, said a co-senior author, Andrea Gambato, uh, associate professor of surgery at the Pitt School of Medicine. That's why it's important to fund vaccine research, she said. You never know where the next pandemic will come from. The researchers also are using a pretty uh, uh, novel approach to deliver the drug. It's called a microneedle array, and they say this will increase the potency. This array is a fingertip-sized patch, and it really, I mean, it's, it's tiny. It's like the pad on uh, on a Band-Aid, like one of the small Band-Aids, not even one of the big ones. It's like a small Band-Aid. It's like it's the size of your fingertip, and it's a square. And on that square, get this, there are 400 needles, 400 of these tiny little needles that deliver the spike protein pieces right into the skin where the immune reaction is strongest. The patch goes on like a Band-Aid, and then the needles, which are made entirely of sugar, and the protein pieces, they basically just dissolve into your skin. They say it's pretty painless. It feels like Velcro. The authors are now in the process of applying for an investigational new drug approval from the FDA in anticipation of starting a phase one human clinical trial within the next few months. Also, this is news out of Henderson County, a newly created emergency response fund to assist Henderson County nonprofits that are responding to the coronavirus. Uh, uh, They've got a $100,000 gift this week from Chuck and Jean, Mike and Kathy McGrady, Chuck McGrady the state representative. The Henderson County COVID-19 Response Fund was established jointly by United Way of Henderson County and Community Foundation of Henderson County to rapidly deploy resources to frontline human service organizations that are helping vulnerable populations during the crisis. The McGrady family's gift will help local nonprofits that are seeing a surge in requests for crisis services such as food, shelter, rent, and utility assistance, as well as basic supplies. This according to BlueRidgeNow.com. It is also intended to spur other contributions to the fund from local citizens who are concerned about how the crisis is impacting low-income individuals and families. Uh, They say the need is great, more donations are needed, and you can help by going to cfhcforever.org. Remember, during terrible events or tragedies, always look for the people that are helping. If you like the show and the content, please subscribe to the podcast, give it a thumbs up in the reviews, and maybe consider becoming a patron of the program. I appreciate all of the support. Uh, Links are all at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.